Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Hi. How are we doing this morning? Awesome. Awesome. Um, My name is Mike Erie, and I'm just delighted to be with you this morning, one of the pastors here on staff. And um, as, oh, thank you very much. As Susie mentioned, we've been going through a series of conversations that we've kind of rearranged a bit of how we do our services. Normally at this time, we open up a chunk of the Bible and just kind of meander through it and marinate in it. But we've been having sort of bigger conversations about what the Bible is exactly and how it is that it's to be understood. And and uh, those conversations have taken us all over the place. Just as a basic reminder, uh, we see the Bible as the Word of God, authoritative, inspired, and we see it also as the, the product of divine and human partnership. There's a very human side to the Bible as well, and that doesn't cancel out the authority of the Scriptures, but it makes it, I think, almost more beautiful that God chose to record the story of human and divine partnership in a human and divine partnership that we call the scriptures. And because there is, um, God, God allowed his story to be told through people in a specific place, in a specific language, at a specific time, um, we talk about concepts like God adjusting to the humans and to their decisions. We talk about concepts like context and genre and literary style and all this sort of boring stuff. But the goal, my friends, For some of us, not all of us, the goal for some of us is just to make the Bible weird again. Because for for some of us, if you're like me, the Bible provides for me a symbolic universe out of which I judge uh, and uh, have a very handy sheet about who's good and who's not and who are the best Christians and who are the worst ones and so on and so on and so on. And so what the Bible has done is that it's provided me ammunition in, um, in in a culture war. And we want to back that up quite a bit to say, okay, um, the Bible isn't something to be mastered and it's an ammunition to be thrown at people. But instead, the scripture invites us into humility. And so we want to make the Bible weird so that we might approach it humbly. Now, for some of you, the Bible's weird already and you don't even know what, when you open the dumb thing, you don't even know like, I don't mean dumb thing like it's really dumb, but I just mean like, you know, you open the thing and it's like, oh my goodness, I have no idea. So um, Kevin's going to be doing a class that's literally, when I open to page one, what next? Um, and highly encourage you to do that. Some of the stuff today, some of the stuff we'll cover, Kevin will actually cover in a couple weeks, are sort of basic ways of approaching the text. But I just want to remind you of the overall goal is just to allow the Bible to be a bit weird again so that we come at it knowing we have to work. It's not just something we open up in English and go, oh, this makes total sense. Um, the basic storyline does. The most important truths do. But even, even Peter says about Paul, some of the stuff Paul writes is hard to understand. And that was to the original audience. So we've got work to do. So today, we're going to talk about this very famous, go ahead, Joe, fire that up. This very famous statement. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> and this... If there, if there is like a, um, a hermeneutical sin of the Bible that Americans do, it is this one. 
It is this one. So we want to talk about something called context. And, and I know, I mean, some of you are like, yeah, yeah, I got it. You got to read the Bible in context. And I don't think we got it. I just don't think we got it. I don't think our minute-long devotionals and our, you know, five-minute Bible reading plans do justice to what the text is saying in its context. Because um, when you break the thing into paragraphs or verse numbers, I mean, that's just not how it was originally uh, received. So we want to talk... And, and I don't know how far we'll get, you guys, this, you know, we, we may not get all the way, which is shocker. Um, but we encourage very much your participation, your questions, and your questions that come in. Oh, look at the fancy text line. Oh, man, Randy, our tech guru, was just boasting about the ability to do that, to put the text number on there. And Randy, well done, sir. Randy, well done. Your salary is justified. Absolutely. It, it really is. Randy wears a t-shirt that walks around that, sa- that, that says, I'm here because you broke something. And, and that is very true. But that's a different story. Bless you, Randy. Now, that text line you can use uh, anytime throughout my ramblings. Um, I'd like you to hold your questions, though, in the room um, towards the end so I can get through the chunk of material. And we will have people who will hold the microphone for you. All right, we love you, we think you're wonderful, but not everyone deserves to hold the microphone, all right? And so we'll just, if you got a question, raise your hand and, at the time and we'll do the question. All right, so anyway, here we go. We've got 89 slides to get through. That was slide number one, verse taken out of context. Giddy up. All right, when we talk about context, we want to do three things. Joe, we want to situate ourselves before the text. Who am I? When we talked about homosexuality last week, that was the the exercise that we did. Who am I in approaching the text? We want to situate the original audience of the text. Who are they? And then we want to situate the text itself. What kind of text is this? Those are the three most important questions we can ask before we ever open the scripture or before we start to apply it and interpret it. So we're going to go through these very briefly. I'm throwing a ton at you. I just want to make it weird. You don't have to get this. I just want to remind us of how big a distance separates us from the text. All right, so when I situate myself before any Bible verse, I have to remind myself that there are three things that are true of me and every American almost uh, entirely. Um, One, I approach the text as an individualist. Number two, I approach the text as an interpretive narcissist. It's all about me. And then I approach the text from a cultural position where I'm centered, affluent, and safe. And I'm going to contrast that with how the original audience would have received the text. Now, if you don't like these words, fine. These are not woke words. These are just words. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is just fine. All right, first of all, are we individuals? Yes! Is Is the individual the most important unit in our entire worldview? Yes! Anything that compromises individual choice is bad. Agreed? Yes. Our entire system is built around maintaining individual rights, and the political parties only differ in terms of where to draw those rights. One political party says, hey, we should not uh, force people into how they spend their money and what they do with their guns. And another party says we should not force people into what they do with their sexuality and gender and what they do with charitable and social work. And so it's beautiful, but the whole debate assumes that the individual is the most important unit of the entire conversation. 
And so one of the things we have to remember about the Bible, it's written by communities for communities. It's not written to you. It's not written to me. So when you read about the armor of God in uh, the book of Ephesians, I think of, oh yeah, I've got to assemble all this armor myself, and you can go to the Christian bookstore and buy little plastic pieces of armor. But, but who is Ephesians written to? Who's it ri- who's written to? The church of Ephesus. Uh, look at a bit like this. So who is to wear the armor of God? The individual or the community? The community. This isn't about me picking up all the individual pieces of armor. This is about the community together and the combination of spiritual gifts under the lordship of Jesus, living and breathing the gospel and how they deal with each other. All right? Even, even the way we're named is so different from names in the Bible. Names in the Bible had to do with your ancestral name, your clan name, your, fa- your family name. Names connected you to the community. Here, the, na- the, 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 the kind of weirder the names, kind of the better. Because individualism says you being distinguished from the community is the highest goal. A collectivist culture says, no, no, you being a part of the community is the highest goal. And um, there, is the, there is a great book. I meant to bring it this morning and I forgot. It was, it's called Misreading the Bible with Western Eyes. And it has a whole big chapter on individualism that's so good. Misreading the Bible with Western Eyes. All right, so that's just one. Number two, interpretive narcissism. And this, it goes with number one. The Bible is for me, about me, and to help me. And, and what's, the, what's the pronoun in all of that? Me. Right? And the classic example of this is Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you. Great. God is going to bless me. I claim this verse. All right, well, claim the freaking context then too. This is in exile. This is to Israel in exile. All right? They're being chastised and disciplined. And the hardest, the most significant and serious covenant threat that God gave the people was kicking them out of the land, and that's what's happened. And then God says to them, um, all of those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, next. He says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon, for crying out loud, which was a huge deal, which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you will prosper. Do not let prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. When 70 years of this are completed, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. So if we're going to claim that bit, then let's claim the exile Let's claim that God will be silent for 70 years. Let's claim that we will be a marginalized, persecuted people for that time, and then he'll bless. When I see a verse like that, my narcissism says, oh yeah, prosper means the American dream. I read prosper as material blessing, safety, comfort, middle class values. That is not at all what this was, right? So we come to the Bible 
as individualists, we come to the Bible as interpretive narcissists. What does this verse mean to me is the worst question you can ask when you come to the Bible. It's not written for you, primarily. You have to understand what it was doing in the original audience before you get to you, and the yous in the Bible are almost exclusively plural. All right? Where the goal is to make it weird. I come from a place where I am a censored, affluent, and safe person. Right? I'm part of the majority culture. I am, I, I am among the most blessed, materially blessed people in the history of the world and the most safe in the history of the world in terms of health care and war and all the other things. Correct? That's, those are just true statements. But when you look at the original audience, next slide. Oh, oh yeah, here's another one. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, this is my affluent, safe reading of uh, uh, Romans 8.28. And I know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Now, how do I define good? How do I define good? What benefits me? Yes! Oh, that's so great. Yes, so when God works for the good of me, he works for my benefit, which is just how we naturally read it. But then Paul clarifies what we're talking about. For the good of those who love him, who've been a called, called according to his purpose, for, God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be con conformed to what? The image of his son. So what is good? To be conformed to the image of his son. What's the image of the son? Crucified on a cross. Does that sound prosperous to you? I'm just pointing out what we all do. I'm as guilty of this as everybody in the room. And maybe you don't do this. Maybe you got it. Fantastic. But I think the American church would really benefit from just realizing that's, I mean, and there's so many more things we could have mentioned, that, that there's a set of lenses we have when we come to the text. We have to be honest if we're going to cultivate humility. Right? If we're going to situate the audience, notice what's true of the audience. The audience, they're people of low status. Notice how Paul describes them in 1 Corinthians. I love this. You never want to hear this when your church planner writes back to you. Go ahead and put that 1 Corinthians up. 1 Corinthians 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called to Christ. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you had noble birth. But God chose the foolish things, which is you, of the world, to shame the wise, which is not you. And, chose, and God chose the weak things, which is you, to shame the strong, which is not you. Right? I mean, Paul even said, I mean, and this was true of the early church. Go back to that slide, if you would. The early church, yep, no, um, go back to the list, Joe. There we go. Um, they were of low status. There were, there were some that were rich. They would meet in homes of rich people, absolutely. There were some wealthy women that supported the ministry of Jesus, so not everybody. But the vast majority, they were people on the margins of society, Right? I mean, when you've got some of your leading leaders, like were peasants and uneducated fishermen and people that had demons cast out of them, right? you're not like, going to attract the best and brightest. These were people who were persecuted. Right? They thought, I mean, Paul even persecutes them, thinking they're actually blaspheming the name of Yahweh by claiming the Messiahship of Jesus. 
They met in house churches. This would have been a mega church in the first century. This would have been a, a gathering of all the house churches in a huge city. So you're looking at churches of 15 to 20 people in the heart of an empire so antithetical to the value system of Jesus of Nazareth. They felt tiny. They had no political power. They were never wondering, hey, who should we vote for? They were never hating with each other about which imperator was the, the closer to the Antichrist or not. Right? That just wasn't on their radar. And the social ordering, these were people that would never associate with each other voluntarily. Slaves and free men and women, right? Rich and poor. I mean, it was, a, it was just a colossally, and that was, was what made it so powerful, was a just colossally eclectic mix of people. They were illiterate. So the, so the text would have to be read aloud all at once. There was no such thing as a verse taken out of context. It was, hey, Phoebe's going to get up and read the book of Romans that Paul sent her to read. And we read the book of Romans. And of course, as we said, they had no political power. Now, contrast that with where I am socially. Right? I'm centered, not persecuted. I'm affluent, not poor. And I'm, what was the other one? Safe. I'm not under threat. Now, that's not true of all the Christians today, but just for me it is. And so, Im immediately you have a distance that has to be overcome between the social status of me, the reader, versus the social status of the listener. We are the most blessed country in the history of the world, and yet so many of our Christian bestsellers are about how to be more blessed. And it's just, it, it, it's, it just strikes at the tendency that we have to read the Bible through middle-class values. It's for my comfort, my safety, my protection, and my prosperity. And we just want to say, nope, Jesus is up to many things. And maybe those things come your way or not, but Jesus is up to turning you in and turning me into little hymns. Right? And that hurts. Carry your cross, you would not think, oh yeah, I'm going to get rich to following this guy when he says carry your cross. And I, I know we're not saying these things, but they are being said out there, right? So when we situate ourselves, we find ourselves in a much different place than the audience, even the authors who were writing, right? And so we have different sensitivities. Does somebody in Ghana approach the Bible differently than me? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's what makes the Bible beautiful, is it allows for that. But I think our reading makes it harder to follow Jesus because we're not reading it in the midst of suffering and persecution. We're reading it in the midst of, how do I get more blessed? So we situate ourselves before the text. We situate the text, or excuse me, we situate the audience of the text, and then we situate the text. Now, was the Bible written in English? No, so there are three languages in the Bible, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Do we know those, do any of us know those languages? Some of us are learning, but no, we don't. So the minute you pick up a Bible translated into English, you're resting on massive amounts of scholarship. Massive amounts of debates about, well, this manuscript has this word over here instead of this word. Which manuscript represents the closest thing we think the original would have had? 
We don't have, as we talked about last week, we don't have the originals. We don't have literally Paul saying, hey, look at what large letters signed Paul, and here it is. So we have just bountiful copies of the originals. And we are, have very reliable copies, absolutely. But already we're separated from the text. So imagine <coughs> if, I wrote, if, if I wrote an email to you when Kobe Bryant was alive, and LeBron James was on the Cavaliers. And I said, hey, the Black Mamba just killed the LeBron-led the LeBron Cavs. And that was my entire email. In 2,000 years, you find that. <laughs> 2,000 years later, you find that. Do you have any idea what we're talking about? None. You have nothing. The Black Mamba. Oh, let me look. That was an animal. Okay, the Cavs. Well, that could stand for a whole lot of things. I mean, right? You would have no, imagine somebody reading that 2,000 years from now. But we think that, oh yeah, I should just be able to pick up a 2,000-year-old text and totally get it at first blush. And there's a lot of it we can. But there's some parts require a little work. So we're separated uh, from the text by time. We're separated by culture. Right, we're separated by language. I mean, here's, a, here's just a dumb example. Here's Galatians. Um, when I go into Christian bookstores, which I do not anymore because I don't know if there are any, but when I used to, they would have the fruit of the Spirit as seven different types of fruit. Or they would have fruit of the Spirit potpourri, which I just thought was amazing. But in Greek, Paul is searching to express the singular fruit that the Spirit produces in a community. And he invents a love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control kind of fruit. It's one fruit, not seven, but one thing described seven different ways. And it's used to describe a community. So if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I've got gentleness and self-control down, but I'm really lacking in joy. This isn't an evaluation tool for your spiritual journey. This is how you measure the health of a community. We are also separated by language. I mean, even today, all right, so this is a dumb thing and probably won't make it to the 11 o'clock service because we're running out of time. But this is how you speak Midwe Midwestern, all right? Midwestern, I'm from Ohio, and this is accurate, all right? So... Yeah, exactly. If someone says, if you ask them a question, they're like, no, yeah, that means yes. If they say, yeah, no, that means no. Yeah, no, for sure, that means definitely. Yeah, no, yeah, that means I'm sorry. <laughs> Unfortunately, the answer is yes. <laughs> no, yeah, no. Oh yeah, nothing to worry about, right? Welp, oh, this is my favorite, I use this one. The exclamation that you make when it's time to go. You're at someone's house, you say, Welp, and you instantly know they're getting up to leave. Right, or oh, oh, excuse me, have you ever heard this? Usually done at potlucks. Oh, took a little much. Oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. This is shorthand apology, all right? I don't know what OPE stands for, but it's a kind of a combination of, oh, I'm sorry, and nope. 
And there it is. Oh, and if you're like, I don't get any of those, then you're not Midwestern. But the point is, even in our world, when I come to the South and someone says, God bless you, and I think, that's a nice thing. And then I realize, it's not always a nice thing. Well, bless his heart. That's not a good thing. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I didn't realize. So even in in American culture, in American dialect, Right? We have all sorts of variations that take time to get to, let alone 2,000 years ago, let alone 4,000, 5,000 years ago for Hebrew. The goal is just to remind us how separated we are from the text. Custom. All right? We have lots of talks uh, on Twitter about uh, modesty. And, oh my, of course, Twitter is the perfect medium to talk about modesty. And there are texts that talk about modesty in the New Testament. Here's one, 1 Corinthians. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Okay, so we have any hats? Sam, of course. Dishonored. That head, dishonored. But if you saw him without a hat, you would realize that's even more dishonorable. Tim has a journey hat. Okay, well, that's 50-50. Um, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head It is the same as having her head shaved. What's wrong with that? For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Now, why why is Paul spending time talking to a church about women's head coverings? I don't see a lot of emphasis on that today. For Paul, and in his culture... One of the things, traditionally, um, uncovered heads um, for women were considered a sign of immorality. But there there was, in Paul's day, a a movement among rich women to shave their head, to shave off their hair, to style it in ways that weren't traditionally feminine, to show off their social status. And so Paul's actually addressing not what we think is modesty, like in terms of sexual modesty, but economic modesty, where the rich would flaunt their wealth. Paul says this same thing in Timothy. Notice, not about head coverings. But he says, therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. All right, men, let's do that one. I also want the women to dress modestly. Now we think, okay, yeah, cover, cover, the, cover everything. Women... But then it's like, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold and pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds. So what kind of modesty is being addressed here? Economic modesty. Ladies, don't flaunt your wealth to shame the poor. So again, they just had different sets of values. Like, if go, skip if you would, uh, Joe, to Ezekiel real quick. The Sodom and Gomorrah story we read as like a massive sexual indictment. And and, and certainly that was a part of it. But in a collectivist culture, it was the lack of hospitality that also was the great sin. And so in Ezekiel, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you, Jerusalem, and your daughters have done. Now the sin was the sin of your sister Sodom. And we all are like, oh, we know what the, the sin of Sodom was, and it was horrific. But notice how the writer frames it here. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and they did not help the poor needy. So we live in a culture that emphasizes sexual sin, 
almost to the exclusion of everything else. They lived in a culture that, yes, talked about sexual sin, but they did it in the context of hospitality and injustice. So it's very easy for Americans to grab a verse here, grab a verse there, and think, yeah, yeah, we got it, and I know how to condemn somebody, and I know how to judge somebody. And there's a place for that within the community, as we've talked about. But I just want to remind us how far we are separated from the text. And so the answer to being separated from the text is doing the hard work of context. And context means we learn about the audience, we are aware of our own filters, we do the hard work of, of reading dictionaries and commentaries and all those sorts of things. And if you're sitting here like, well, yeah, I don't have time to do that, I totally understand. It's okay that you don't have time to do all of this, but what I'm trying to war against is thinking that we can just pull something out of the text and go beat people up with it, or go claim it as a promise and then disappointed when God doesn't do that for me. Right? When it says in Proverbs, you know, train your child in the way that they should go and they'll never depart from it. And I've, I've had parents just weeping over why well, I did. I prayed over my kid and I instructed them in the Bible and now they're totally rebelling. And what is presented as wisdom, which is generally true, was, was turned into an outcome that God guaranteed for me. And now I'm angry at him that it didn't happen. Does this make sense so far? No? Who said no? Oh, well, let me tell you right now, I'm shocked you're still awake. My boy Isaac, you can't see him, but Isaac, he gave me the biggest hug. He ran over, gave me a hug. We took communion together, and he is out. And, and I think that is a great use of this teaching time. If you're ever fighting to stay awake, I say sleep. Oh, what up? Good morning. I know you're tired. Listen, I'm tired too. All right, now, it's 10.01. I have three other passages where I was going to show how things are taken out of context. All right, let me just give them to you quick. We won't go through them. One is John 10, and I, I, I think we talked about this in the 11. John 10, 10, when it says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, He's not talking about Satan, he's talking about false religious leaders in the context of John 9 and 10. All right, and we can read the text, but we're going to get to questions. Second one was in Revelation 3 when Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, and anyone who opens the door, I will have fellowship with them. Revelation 3, of course, is written to a church, so it's about a church excluding Jesus. So evidently, Jesus doesn't always show up at a church, which is fascinating. It's not about Jesus knocking on the individual door of your heart. And then the third text I wanted to show was the text about communion that everyone uses to scare each other. Well, well, people were dying in communion, and if you don't take it right, you're toast. And we've looked at this text, we've taught through it, but in 1 Corinthians 11, if you want to go back and read the context, it's about the rich shaming the poor. And so his instruction wasn't, hey guys, make sure you're morally pure before you take communion, but rather eat together because the rich were eating before the poor. So those were just three examples of like things that are very often bantered around in Christian circles that, you know, weren't quite doing justice to the, to the greater context. All right, any questions? We got about 15 minutes. Bam! Yep, wait, you wait, yep, wait, just for our online folks. Sorry. 
Um, so where did that shift in the reading begin? Was it when the rise of like politics and politicians came and they needed people to vote? Was it in the rise of like which which part of the reading? The individualistic reading was that from the rise of politicians or the rise of like the American Dream? Or the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment. Okay. Yes, the Enlightenment had a set of values about the maximizing of human potential, and so the Bible got co-opted into the maximizing of human potential. So, and hallelujah for sermons that are like, hey, here's how you be a better husband, here's how you be a better wife, here's how you run a business. But that's not the gospel, right? That's self-improvement, and hallelujah for self-improvement. Jesus improves our lives. The problem is, we just define self-improvement as an affluent American, and Jesus defines self-improvement as less of you and more of him. So, Mike, here's one from the text line. That's wonderful, thank you. Also, um, it's two questions together, but I'm just going to give you the second one. Uh, aren't communities made up of individuals? What is the responsibility of an individual? Then? Yes, great question. Yes, and, and that is exactly what individuals say. When you, they hear about the importance of communities, right? We're so, and I'm, I do this too, we're so impoverished that we literally have no other way to conceive of thinking about things than the individual. So we look at this, and the church is a voluntary association of individuals. In the Bible, the church's brothers and sisters bound together and belonging together by their mutual commitment to Jesus. So yes, you have an individual role to play, but you don't get to determine the individual role you play. The community determines what role you play by the gifts that you've been given to serve the community. So yes, we have an individual part. Of course, you're going to go into work tomorrow as individuals or school tomorrow as individuals. But when I look at the world, and this, this has taken me years, and I'm not even close to approximating it, but when I look at the world, I don't look at myself as Mike Erie, individual person. I look at myself as Mike Erie, part of Journey Church. And that, that is how I now engage the world. I am part of a community, and that community defines how I function as an individual. So I don't have the freedom to just go flipping off people in traffic because I'm a part of Journey Church. Now, I know that sounds cheesy in what a pastor would say, but I'm not talking about Journey Church, the service, as if we're some church that's better than any other church or something. No, 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 I'm not talking about marketing. I'm talking about how it is that you look on the world and what it is that you see. And we just have to be deprogrammed along the lines of, yeah, I, my contribution to the community is more important than whether or not I feel fed by the community. Because think about how we evaluate church services, right? I mean, let's just be honest, all right? And I do this too. But we evaluate church services, a lot of us do, like we evaluate movies. Did I like it? Was it worth my time? Was it compelling? Was I interested? Was I bored? I'll never see that again, right? And, and all I'm saying is, I mean, the arrogance of my heart when I sit in a community like that with you have to prove to me that you're worthy of my belonging, that's antithetical to Jesus on the cross. Now that doesn't mean I'm not pitching a church, but the church is the worldwide communion of saints, is it not? And it has various local forms, does it not? And in those various local forms, we find one and commit to it, even if we don't like everything that's happening. And that shapes us into the kinds of people who are not consumers, but partners and participants. And I know we all know this, right? And it's easy for pastors to say, 
and then let's pass the plate, right? But there's a deeper sense in which we need to be retrained in how to see the world and ourselves in it. Great question. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. Oh, 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 sorry. Sorry, go Sam. The head covered. Sam. Okay, so this is kind of a really big question, but um, I didn't grow up in a church. So when you just read those three passages, my husband did. And I was like, do you know those? And he was like, absolutely. Yeah. And I was like, lost. Yeah. Um, so I always, I grew up with a, a, a community that was like 50% Jewish. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I always grew up knowing was about how the Romans slashed out chapters of the Bible. Um, and what I never understood is how, if everybody knows that, right? I don't know about the Romans slashing out or parts like of the Bible. They, Can you they tell took me more? Out, well, they took out the, the passages of the Bible that were like, um, does anybody else know what I'm talking about? I'm not even good at quoting this. No, 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 no. Keep going. Um, because Keep going. they were trying to make the Bible um, more compliant with what they, where it would work smoothly with the other religions that they recognized. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Is this accurate? I'm not sure. I don't know. You oh. would know better. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> Someone told me. This, this wasn't in the Bible bowl, so I can't help. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but keep going. Keep going. Okay, so I was explained to me in some history class, I don't yeah. remember, back in the day that when I took, that um, this happened, and at one point we even found the parts of the Bible that were taken out. Nice. Uh, <laughs> and uh, what I always wondered is, like, I learned that in a history class yeah. as fact. Yeah. And so I never understood about um, wrapping your brain around, like, the, when people are like, the Bible is the word of God. Yeah. But I'm like, well, what about the parts that the Romans took out? Right. I mean, doesn't it immediately just assume that it's been distorted? Right. And I just don't ever, uh, I've always, like, and if I bring that up, people seem to change the subject. <laughs> right. So and I'm like. Let's talk about football. <laughs> I think that's a great or, idea. Or let's go back to but. It yeah. says that this is wrong. Right. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Right, go right, back to right, my right. original question. <laughs> right. Okay. First of all, thank you so very much. And, and it's interesting because in some ways you're in a better position to wrestle with the text in its weirdness because you weren't raised thinking it was just perfectly clear all the time. And so it's just, so, so don't feel bad at all. And I don't, I don't know exactly what the, the history of that is. I know, I know there are very many like current examples. Like there was a slave Bible that was edited by slave owners, and you can read it, where they cut out any talk of slavery except honor your masters. But they cut out the Exodus story. Uh, they cut out Jubilee. They gutted the Bible of anything that would foster slaves thinking that they could be free. And that's true. We did that. Thomas Jefferson cut out tons of the New Testament about, around the miraculous. So it's been happening the whole time. The question, if I'm understanding you right, is, well, how do we know that the Bible that we have is actually the Bible that was written? Is that, is that right? Right, well, that's where I would probably disagree with your history prof. But I'm not a prof, I don't have a PhD, but I would, the manuscript history of the Bible allows us to actually go back within, man, 40 or 50, 60 years of when the uh, originals might have been written. 
and we get to we start having fragments of the gospels that we then combine with with later fragments of the gospels and then full manuscripts and you see this remarkable consistency only about 400 words in the entire new testament are in dispute about what could have meant that and some of the, and most of those are just minor misspellings or editorial corrections so if, if what you're history prophesying is, yeah, there's a, there's a history, and there were people who were deciding what parts were in the Bible and what parts weren't, certainly the early churches, there were lots of different books floating around that carried the name of Jesus or Mary or Peter or Thomas or whatever, and the early church was discerning which, one of, which, which of these are from Jesus and have his authority and which don't. Absolutely. So I don't want to ever pretend there isn't a messy backstory there, but I'm not, I'm not sure exactly that bit from your history prof. I, I don't know enough to know to answer that. Perfect. And keep, I mean, keep, keep asking questions like this because for, for, for a lot of us, we know those passages left and right. Don't feel bad because you don't almost think that puts you in a better situation in some ways, to approach the text now. So great, great, great. Let's do one more, if we've got, uh, if we've got one more, if you want. Oh, Isaac, what do you got, buddy? Isaac's got a question, I know, and then we'll go back. I got it, I got it, nope, I get over What's up, Isaac? So, um, I was just, I was fixing my dog, like, and tell you about it, I don't tell yet. How does... I was going to my friends and something else he does about them. The thing is, I don't remember the power of powers. I don't remember that one before. Nice. Can I get a translation on that? Okay. First of all, that is a great question. Secondly, the answer is yes. Fantastic. All right. No, that was awesome. All right. Next. So my question is, how do we teach? This is the last question. <laughs> okay, this is going to be a good one then. Exactly. <laughs> How do we teach the Bible to our children without messing them up? <laughs> oh, oh, I wish we knew. <laughs> the way that we feel like we learned the Bible growing up and kind of like taking all these verses and they're out of context and I don't want to do that to my kids. So I feel like I shy away from teaching oh, them that's things so good. in the Bible. I'm yes. Like, I don't want to we don't have jack them, them up. grow up the way that I grew up. Right. Know? Well, we'll mess them up differently no matter what, correct? <laughs> so let's just, parents, we've jacked our kids up. It's too late. Fantastic. But there are a couple of things, maybe. Huh? Were you talking to me? Oh, okay. One thing for sure, and I'm sure you already do this, is that you allow them and most, most of us do, every question imaginable. No questions off limits. We never shut down their questioning if they hear something in church and they're just like, I don't buy it. We never just go, oh, well, now listen. You know, we, so we encourage their, their thinking and we allow them to wrestle and question. Secondly, there are, depending on how old your kids are, there are um, the Bible, their children's Bibles, like the Jesus Storybook Bible is one of my favorite because it just is bringing everything back to who Jesus is. And that's where I would start. I think one of the things that we do, I don't know, that maybe I would change a little bit, but I'm not a children's director, um, is we often just start with stories in the Old Testament, and hallelujah for those things. They are written for our edification, but I would just want to situate myself on Jesus as much as possible because 
we get his words, and then in Jesus, you enter into the rest of the Bible. You know, very often we read um, Paul or the Old Testament first and then come to Jesus and try to make sense of Jesus through those lenses. I think it's the, the flip. I think when you read Jesus and prioritize him, he takes you into the Old Testament, and then you read about his followers, and that takes you into the rest of the New. So censoring um, Jesus, of course, but um, I really think that, I mean, this, oh, this is such a juicy question. Um, permitting questions, allowing those things, saying I don't know is just really powerful, you know, to our kids. I'm not sure about that. But I also think um, having them engage with the text in non, in more artistic ways, in just nonlinear ways like here are right answers and here are things that you have to believe. Um, uh, engaging in the Psalms, perhaps. Those sorts of things are super powerful, too. I love that question. Because it's not just for, for our kids, right? It's for us, too. How do we now pick up the Bible and go, okay, well, let's make sense of this thing. And the big, and the big thing, if there's one thing you take away from today, guys, look at me. This is big. I can do all things for a verse taken out of context. All right, that's what you're to remember out of all of this. Am I right? All right. Now, you want to come up and pray for everybody? All right, let's see. Kevin, can you grab a microphone for this young man? Guys, it is 10, 16. We're killing it in terms of time, ladies and gentlemen, killing it. All right, so just a reminder, next week, we've got Susie P. Lind. Her middle name is not have a P in it, but that's what Seth calls her, Susie P. Lind. And then the week after, Kevin, uh, and then the Bible series will be over. We'll go back to our original format, and we're going to take all of this and apply it to the book of Revelation. All right? And that's when this will start to flesh out and make a little sense. All right? If it's not already. All right, so stand up if you would. If you want to talk more today, Kevin's got his conversation out the door to the left. I, Isaac, why don't you and I stand up here so everyone can see our faces? All right? Are you comfortable praying, or do you just want to say goodbye? What do you want to do? No, 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 I'm going to pray. You're going to pray? Yeah. All right, fantastic. Do it. To receive this is a blessing. I praise for my, um, my friends and my, my family and my brother and my sister for college. And I decided this church, and my friend Mike, with my I understood buddy. that one. Amen. 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 Yes. Thank you very much. That's Isaac, everybody. All right, gang. Bless you. We love you. See you next time.